0: You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood.
1: Well, hey, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, Glad to be here. We're wrapping up the weekend. We got to uh, grill some last night.
2: That was good.
1: We made some jambalaya on the grill, start really to finish. good,
2: yeah. So, so yeah, if you're, you are know, you want to join us sometime for dinner, you need to contact us.
1: Yeah, it was fun. So, um, yeah, come by. We'll, we'll work it out. We'll Nathan- hang out on the backyard.
2: <laughs> and Nathan feeds his guest well. <laughs> yeah.
1: So... Anyway,
2: that might be why I lost weight over the COVID thing. I wasn't up here every weekend for you to feed me. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: like our food here. So that being said, I think we should move on. Don't waste too much time on that. No,
2: no. Well, I think everybody who's listened to more than two episodes know that we really like our food. We like our food. So yeah. (laughs) But we are
1: are still in the book of Samuel. mm -hmm.
2: Are we wrapping up 17 today? We are wrapping up 17. We've still got a couple of uh, things to address. And so, you know, because we ended up last week, David had taken the armor back to his tent, this mysterious tent that just appears. We uh, had no mention of it before. So we don't know if, you know, he plundered one from the Philistines because the Philistines were plundered. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't know if he was given one because now he's a champion war hero of the nation. Mm -hmm. Both are plausible reasons for him to now have a tent This is where those people who are hypercritical of the Bible like totally freak out. Oh my gosh! There's a disparity. There's you know some kind of there's a tent mentioned where no tent was
1: mentioned before. Yeah,
2: look, the text is contradicting itself. Come
1: on, guys. I have lots of things (laughs) that I don't mention. You know,
2: really? Yeah. (laughs) It's like (laughs) until I need to.
1: Like, you know, my neighbor asked me if I had a jack the other day. Like, I do have a jack. That yeah yeah floor jack to borrow but
2: you had not announced this to him previously i
1: yeah i didn't give him an inventory list when he
2: moved in so uh, awful awful of you yeah and but these are the kinds of things that critics use to try to pick the bible apart and it you know a little common sense and a little bit of you know just think it through and think about how you live your life like with the floor jack i mean a lot of these things are answered just Boom, okay, yeah, it wasn't
1: mentioned <laughs> until it was necessary
2: yeah we don't we don't need to make a big deal out of this, but um he'd also taken the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. We talked about, you know, kind of why that's important and why it's confusing, and so that that's an interesting question uh, to ask is why in the world would he do that when Israel hadn't conquered Jerusalem just yet, right, and so Now we're moving into uh, verses 55 through 58, and this is a conversation between Saul and his general Abner, and it really poses a problem because Saul doesn't seem to know who who David is, and I'm just going to read that so you can get a feel for it, so this is like I said, verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, who is, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire of whose boy, the, uh, whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you? Young man said, And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So it seems like nobody knows who, you know, who David is, which poses a problem because in in chapter 16, we've been told that David's the court musician. Yeah. And this is where you had brought up the question even before I did that. Whether they were flipped. Whether they were flipped.
1: Well, and. In another way, if if it's not flipped, it could even be so much as, you know, who knows how much time has passed since the time he was playing in the, the mm-hmm. court to when he had to go back mm-hmm. to work in the sheep and work the sheep. Right. And so it may have been, you know, 12 or 13 playing the liar. But mm-hmm. then you have the problem of them saying he's a man of war. Right. Because a lot of aging, you know, if he goes, you know, People change a lot between the age of 12 and the age of like 18 or 19. Yes. So it could have been a while, but I don't get, I don't know. That's to me, that's where it seems like it's flipped.
2: Right. As the man of war thing. Well, and, and but at the same time, it's kind of like there, there's several reasons why, why your solution uh, proposed solution, not saying that you own it exclusively, but the one that you, you suggested, which other scholars have suggested, um, the the problem one of the problems is why the lengthy introduction at the end of sixteen, mm-hmm. and so we we have this lengthy introduction. And if this is the second time they're meeting, then what what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Uh, why does Saul need all that information? However, like you said, it does explain the man of war phrase. So it, it, there's it creates a solution and poses another problem. Sure. And so, how do we deal with that? Uh, there's the possibility that this speech right here in chapter 18 is um, sorry 17 is Saul's formal introduction to David as a warrior. That this is court speak. That this is him trying. You know, it's you are no longer just a kid playing music for me. You are a warrior, and now I have to acknowledge you as a warrior. So it could be actually some kind of ritual uh, introduction. I think that's kind of weak, but because I don't know of any um, other writings that we have from that period that support this kind of um, speech in this area, mm-hmm. but some have also suggested that it's a flashback, that this is a flashback to when um, Saul meets David before Goliath, which it kind of makes sense.
1: Except he has, says he has the head of Goliath in his hand.
2: There you go. So, well, the thing is the speech part could have taken place before, okay, and then he could have come in with the head. It, it does get murky, and so these are the things you know when people say, "Oh, the Bible contradicts itself, okay, let's play with stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Let's play with stuff that actually matters right because this is this is the kind of thing that it does pose a problem if you're a careful um a careful reader, but the the uh, suggestion suggestion is. That by putting this speech here, we're, we're really emphasizing this miraculous rise of David from an obscure, unknown kid mm-hmm. to this warrior. So you're kind of getting a glimpse of how kind of meteoric his rise was. But the other suggestion, and I, I actually kind of like this. said Saul's asking to clarify which family gets the tax exemption because the family is the one that's going to benefit most immediately. Okay. And notice he doesn't ask who is David, he says whose son is he? Gotcha. And so I'm like, that makes sense. I can actually get behind that.
1: Yeah, and him being a young guy, mm-hmm. it would be assumed that his father is still alive.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Okay.
1: That that would make sense.
2: Yeah, to me I can live with that. And you know, and we do still have the issue of, of Goliath's head, did he take it to Jerusalem and then bring it back to Saul? Did uh, he go meet Saul first and then take it I to would Jerusalem? I assume he would
1: meet Saul first, then take it to Jerusalem, and that that one just got told out of order. Yeah, That's I, the, I mean, that and, one to me seems like the simplest explanation.
2: And most of the time, the simplest explanation is the explanation.
1: Well, we already know that the timeline is a mess. Right. Most of the time, when we're going through the narratives, that the the narrators often would. Start to tell one part, then they would tell another part. Mm-hmm. That's you know w- would would need to inform that that what would actually be a later part. But then they go back without saying. But before that happened,
2: right? <laughs> There's no like dreamy wavy um, right you know, <laughs> image that pops up on the page. You know, have or, the harp music, <laughs> right? And, and that's the thing when you when you think about this, these were you know stories that were told and over and over and over again. Within families, within communities. And the writer of Samuel is, has gathered up all of these traditions and he's attempting to harmonize them and he's attempting to, to let you know hey, this is kind of a cohesive walkthrough of how we got here. But at the same time, when you've got 20 different people telling the story and they're all thinking that this aspect is the most important and this aspect is the most important and everybody's got a different aspect that's more important, mm-hmm. they're going to tell the story. To emphasize what they think is most important. It doesn't make the stories conflict and it doesn't make them contradict each other so much as the, the emphasis is different. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you've got four kids or you've hung around with four or more kids and they all come to you to tell you of something really important that's happened, they're all going to tell you the same story, but they're all going to tell it in just a little different way. Sure. And so, you, your wife's a teacher; she gets it, and you spend a lot of time at school. So I mean, it's—I it's, try not
1: to interact with the students.
2: <laughs> it's probably a good thing. They shouldn't let you interact with the students.
1: <laughs> they're, you know, I don't even know most of their names. Yeah, you know, I just work maintenance. I—I I have the easy job.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I—I mean, love kids. I love people who work with kids more. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that's just not my gifting. Uh, But no, I usually have a lot of fun with them once I'm with them. It's just the idea. It's like, no, don't throw me into the lion's den (laughs) so or that furnace, whatever. But anyway, uh, moving on with the story, David continues, and he confirms his identity. He says that he is David. He is the son of Jesse. He is from Bethlehem. And we're reminded that he's the anointed king, that David's standing before Saul right now is the one that God is going to put on Saul's throne. And there's all this tension and buildup that, that the story is leading us to because we know there's got to be a conflict at some point. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to get there? And if Saul is too scared to go out and face Goliath, then what's he going to do about David? Because the one he really should be afraid of is David. So that's where this chapter leads off, and when I got done with that, I wanted to look at were there any psalms that had been written about David and Goliath? Okay. So if you want to read Psalms 151 for us, it's eight verses long. It's not a big deal. You read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. <laughs> so 151. Let me look it up here. And so, yeah, this is last <laughs> psalm in the book. Indeed. Yeah, very last one in the Bible, and yeah, it's not in this one. Yeah, I know. Um, I just had to say yep a little bit. Uh, it actually, it's not in the Masoretic text, and most of your your Old Testament translations are going to be based primarily on the Masoretic text. Um, when I began looking for a psalm to talk about, you know, if David had talked about David and Goliath in any of the psalms, which we kind of expect from David, most of his major life events are marked with the composition of a psalm. Yeah, um, there wasn't one. I mean, people kind of said, "Oh, well, maybe this one, maybe that one." I and I would read them, and they really felt like they were alluding to other parts. There was no real strong consensus, but there is this Psalms one fifty one, and it's not in most English translations. Because it's not in the Masoretic, it was only found in the Septuagint. So therefore, it was written in Greek and not Hebrew. And even in the Greek, it has the footnote that it falls outside the numbers. So it was included, but it wasn't numbered. And some Bibles do have it. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Bible, Coptic churches, some of their editions, the Vulgate, some of them have uh, copies of it. Most Catholics, Protestants, and Jews consider this to be apocryphal. And the reason for that was because it was only in the Greek that we had it to begin with I mean, for so long. However, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, 151 was included. Nice. In, yeah, in, it was included with the Psalm Scroll. And the thing was, it was originally composed in Hebrew, and now we have evidence of that. So, uh, you can look it up online. It is there. Uh, if you have a new revised standard version of the Bible, one of the, the um I'm trying to remember which copies, but they, most of them have the 151. So I'm going to read it because like I said, it's only eight uh, chapters, verses long, not eight chapters. Thank God for that. But it is eight verses long. it says, I was small among my brothers, the youngest in my father's house. I tended my father's sheep. My hands made a harp, my fingers fashioned a lyre. And who will tell my Lord, the Lord himself, it is he who hears. It is he who sent his messenger and took me from my father's sheep and anointed me with his anointing oil. My brothers were handsome and tall, but the Lord was not pleased with them. I went out to meet the Philistine and he cursed me by his idols, but I drew his own sword, beheaded him and took away the disgrace from the people of Israel. So. You know, definitely this is about, you know, 16 and 17, those two chapters. Now, whether David actually wrote them or not, right? we don't know. Uh, but it does have the feel that we would expect from one of the Davidic Psalms. And the the thing is, it, it's correct in what it's um, presenting. And it, it's not going to hurt anyone to read the Psalm. It, it's, sure. It's not. Yeah,
1: this should not affect your <laughs> theology in any way.
2: Right, right, and and it would make sense that David would have written about this. I don't think we should be, you know, terribly upset Surprised. about. Yeah. <laughs> now, and it's quite possible that he did write about it, and this isn't the one he wrote, but we lost it. And the the point is, it, it's interesting. It's a fun tidbit. There are literally thousands of psalms attributed to David and Solomon that we don't have now how many of them actually were their psalms i don't know and did we lose something that they wrote i'm sure i mean i i grew up with you and you wrote how many songs have you written that you just don't even remember uh, a ton yeah. yeah yeah
1: you remember the best ones that's about it you hope you remember the best ones <laughs> you hope you remember the best. yeah actually some of the best ones forget we write them down <laughs> well them jamming with people and you're like, what did I say? What did I say?
2: <laughs> well, in the days before you had a recorder on your phone, can you imagine? Oh. Yeah. So, and and that's the thing. Even me drawing, when I do drawings. How many drawings get? You know, they they fall off on the floor, and the cat mm-hmm. steps on them, and it's like, well, that one's gone. Yeah. And so, to think that we didn't lose some of the writings would be ridiculous. And. I I don't think that we could claim that, oh yeah, we've got them all. And so, you know, be realistic as as realistic as possible uh, about the biblical characters and figures. So now for the part of the show, we're both looking forward to. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're moving into Psalms 18. Samuel 18. Samuel 18. Let's do Psalms 18 instead. How about that? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> um, You're the one who makes the notes. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any notes on, Psalm, on Psalms 18. So we're, we're opening up, um, just looking at the opening passage of uh, Samuel 18. And this is the introduction of David to Jonathan. And this has become a hot passage among the debate between whether the Bible affirms or doesn't gay infir- doesn't affirm gay relationships. So I want to go through this passage like we normally do, and I want to look at what this passage says in order, just just like always. Mm-hmm. I want to address the this the arguments that are used to support um, this being a gay affirming passage versus the arguments that don't. And then because once I get out of this passage, I never want to have to talk about David and Jonathan being gay again because it distracts from the rest of the story, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We're going to look at all the other verses, and we're going to talk about why they actually work or don't work. And I'm going to talk about how we as Christians actually created this debate. Okay. And I'm not talking like liberal Christians. I'm talking the most conservative Christians. We created this debate. Okay. So little warning. You don't want your toes stomped on might turn it off now. So I don't, like I said, very reluctant because it, I think it does distract from the good stuff in this mm-hmm. that, that we need to be learning. So verses one through five, I'm, I'm not going to read it because I hate to read out loud and that's a lot of verses, but basically what we, we begin with is as soon as Saul and David finish having their conversations, we're told that, um, Jonathan's soul is knit to the soul of David, and that Jonathan loves David's soul as his own soul. And then almost immediately, Saul takes David into his own house and he won't let him return to the house of his father. So it, it's the end of this back and forth between David and Jesse. And that's significant. We're going to talk about that uh, in a minute, too. So then Jonathan makes this covenant with David because, quote, he loved David as his own soul. We're told that twice. And then Jonathan strips himself of his robe and he gives it to David. He gives David his armor. He gives David his sword. He gives him his bow. He gives him his belt. And David went out and was successful in everything that Saul tells him to do. And David's appointed a commander over a large uh, contingencies of men. And so this is, it, this is how David's new position within the palace is defined after killing Goliath. So we're going to start with verse one. The, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So the claim is that David and Jonathan have this love at first sight, soulmate kind of connection. So rule number one, and this is the one we try to abide by anytime we do any kind of scriptural interpretation or exegesis, is scripture interprets scripture. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a constant. So we have to ask, are there any other passages that use this word knit and this idea, this concept of souls being knit together and within the scriptures? So that's, that's what we're going to begin looking for, because if this is how the Bible uses this is to denote a romantic or sexual relationship, mm-hmm. then we have to be honest mm-hmm. about what the Bible actually says. So Typically, when the writer of Samuel remember, whenever you look at this, you start within the own bo- within the same book, and then you move to the same writer, then the same Testament and genre, and then you branch out from there. So within the, the book of Samuel itself and remember, the book of Samuel encompasses first and second Samuel and what we call first and second kings. the word is used 16 times. So okay. we've got a lot of examples. This is a good, meaty word that we can look at the definitions to, to understand
0: okay.
2: 16 times it's used as a conspiracy. It denotes the leaguing together, conspiring. And so there's not necessarily a love connection that's used with this, ver- with this word. It is, you know, co-conspirators. It's people who are working together for the same goal, but there's also an element of, of secrecy and covertness to it. And so I think when we look at that, the only time we see it interpreted with kind of a loving connotation is here with David and Jonathan. Mm-hmm. So that's in Samuel. But if we go back to Genesis forty four thirty, and this is a passage, Judah is speaking to Joseph. He does not know it's Joseph. Joseph is in, um, in Egypt. He's going through all of his little machinations on, you know, getting the, the brothers to prove that they're now worthy of being trusted and back into the fold. And, uh, Joseph has asked that Benjamin be brought to him uh, or he's actually going to keep Benjamin. And so this is Judah talking and he says, now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy, Benjamin is not with us. Then as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Okay. So remember I talk about the inconsistencies in the ESV. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that bound up there is the same word. So where the Samuel says knit, the the Genesis says bound up. And so we miss the connection right off the bat. But also that. Here in Samuel, it says, I think it was heart or soul was, was bound up. Mm-hmm. Uh, here it's life. Their life is bound up. It's nefesh. It's the same word. So we have both words together. And the idea that be, the heart and soul being knit together applies not only with David and Jonathan, but also with Jacob and Benjamin. So obviously this is not a romantic or sexual relationship here with Jacob and Benjamin this is a father son relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a a kind of an idea that it does not have to is not kind of it is presenting the fact that you do not have to interpret this passage romantically and I think that the other problem is we don't have any passages where it is used romantically. It is more about political conspiracies. And remember, we've already had this um, already had this connection with David back to Benjamin with, you know, David was the son of Jesse's old age, and we spent a lot of time talking about that. So it does it makes sense that there is this connection re-established and reaffirmed, but you aren't going to see it because of inconsistencies within the English translation. And I really think in my mind, based on what we know of how the Bible uses foundational stories and retelling, we're being told that Jonathan is going to be taking on not just a friendship role, but also kind of a fatherly role here. And I think to me, that makes sense. Jonathan's older than David, possibly, you know, around 10 years older. Um, we had some discussion in the paddle store trying to determine exactly how old Jonathan was. There's mm-hmm. a lot of debate and a lot of gray area. We got smart people in the paddle store discussing this. Right. But there's enough of an age difference that they were not, you know, two teenagers running around together. Sure. That it, that's not the relationship they had. Jonathan knows what kind of man his father is. Mm. I mean, Jonathan was almost killed because his dad saw him as a threat. And we also know that jonathan was very much a warrior right so now we're then told that jonathan loved david as his own soul okay so the claim is this has to be a romantic la- relationship because it says jonathan loved david so we don't have enough time to talk about all the people who love david but to give a small sampling of the places where the exact same word is used saul loves david Mm. Jonathan loves David. McCall, Saul's daughter, loves David. Saul's servants love David. All of Judah loves David. So, if this is always referring to a sexual or romantic relationship, David's pretty busy. Mm. So, it's not a good argument. Whatever you read in this, whether you're seeing friendship or you're seeing a sexual relationship, that's your bias. And, And I mean, and I'm willing to say, even seeing it as a friendship, that's my bias. Sure. So, other times, the word is used outside of um, outside of Samuel. Abraham loves Isaac. Isaac loves Rachel. Isaac loves Esau. Isaac loves Rebecca. Rebecca loves Jacob. Isaac loves the red meat. Jacob loves Benjamin. so we we see that the word does not have any definitive uh, this has to be
1: right, romantic, uh, yeah, because yeah.
2: it's not Greek. We're dealing with Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have that real precise, you know, this is exactly what I mean. We, right. we have abstractions. So um, in 2 Samuel, uh, David does also declare, um, actually, we're going skip, to skip that for a minute. We're going to go into verse 2. So Saul took David into his home and would not let him leave. So there's no more back and forth between the house. That's why I'm saying it was important that... Um, that we m- might consider that Jonathan is looking at a fatherly role because Jesse disappears at this point. Right. David doesn't have anyone to to stand in on their behalf. Now Jonathan makes a covenant with David. This is verse three. The claim is that this is a marriage uh, ceremony. So this is this one's real easy, and this is something that you guys can do on your own. But I want to tell you how to do it because you can, how to look at these verses and understand them, okay. because a lot of people don't, don't understand how to look at a verse and try to understand what it's saying. So look up the word covenant in a, in a concordance. Find where covenants are spoken of. Mm-hmm. Look at how many times the word is used. So when you read through them, there's over 280 times that a covenant is spoken of in the Old Testament. Out of 280 plus times, seven times it's used to refer to marriage. Right. So to say that a covenant ceremony has to be a marriage is missing the entire point. It's a weak argument. And if you want to use this this passage to affirm that Jonathan and David were in a homosexual relationship, find a better passage. So... The, the claim that goes along with this is, oh, it refers back to Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and they were naked and unashamed. The problem is, none of those words, literally, none of those words are found here in Samuel. Okay, like Usually, whenever you have two passages that are connected, you have a couple of key words that are shared, and you've got a unifying theme, and... It's not here. Right. All we have is a covenant. And like I said, 280 plus times, we can talk about covenants. There's, you know, land agreements, the covenant with God and Abraham, and all of these covenants that have nothing to do with any kind of affection, Mm -hmm. let alone love. And also, um, if we're going to say that love is one of the primary uh, requirements, just having that description. Is a primary requirement for saying this is a sexual romantic relationship. Loving your neighbor as yourself becomes a really tricky thing to do. So, you know, we've got to be careful because if we take it out to the logical conclusion, mm-hmm. that that's where we start seeing. oh, wait a minute, there's a problem. So verse four, Jonathan stripped of his robe. The claim is this is a sexual encounter. See, he got naked. Okay, literally not even what the verse says, right? This is a robe. This is the outer garment. If it meant his underwear, it would have used a completely different word. That word is missing. So this is like giving somebody your coat Mm -hmm. and nobody thinks that that means anything other than you gave them your coat. So actually,
1: and the, and the coat, the, the robe at this point, it, it would have been a status thing and since Jonathan was a commander of of a lot of troops, it would have been saying, hey, we've kind of found someone who can replace me as the commander here.
2: It, that's it. And if we're looking at it from, oh, this is arguing for a sexual relationship, we miss what Jonathan's doing. Mm-hmm. Because Jonathan is giving David all the symbols of the royal commander, even the kingship itself. Because you don't get this kind of armor, you don't get this kind of weaponry or even the quality of clothing that Jonathan was giving unless you are a royal person, unless you belong mm-hmm. to the royal house. And so in many schools of thought, scholars see this as Jonathan being very deliberate and intentional in relinquishing the throne to David. Mm-hmm. That this is an act where Jonathan says, I know it can't be me. I I, I just Get it. And now notice, you know, Saul's armor didn't fit. Right. Jonathan's does. Mm-hmm. And in many respects, the two men, Jonathan and David, they're, they're identical. I mean, they're both warriors who took a Philistine on or took the Philistines on mm-hmm. on faith. Um, they've both been imperiled by Saul's co- uh, cowardice and, and inaction to face a situation. And they're men who respected the king of Israel, despite the fact that they knew that he wasn't being the king that he should have been. And they both stand by Saul through all this. Mm -hmm. And the only glaring difference between the two is Jonathan is not as grasping and manipulative as David. Jonathan just does. David's always plotting his next move. And, you know, to be a successful political leader, you almost have to have that that hunger and that drive to to get ahead. And Jonathan, he he's never shown as having that. And in some ways, he's seen as almost too nice mm-hmm. to be the king, and that might be why he was not appropriate for the king. Was he a good guy? Was he a great guy? Absolutely. And he was even a man of faith, but he just he he doesn't want it. He doesn't have that gut draw to to power and, and conquer and making mm-hmm. sure everything goes that that uh, goes the way God wants it, the same way that David does. But by giving by giving all of this to David, it's very possible he's saying, you're the rightful successor. Sure. You're the one who needs to be on the throne now. And given what we've known about Jonathan so far, I can see him doing that. I, I can see him being the one saying, I, I I don't have to fight for this. Right. And there's no need for me to fight for this because it's it's God's will. And so, verse five Saul set David over men of war, and this makes him a general. Uh, David proves he's good at it. And there's, you know, entire country, even Saul's servants see that, that David's good at it. Everyone celebrates what, what David's capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this description here is a play on that word for, um, from Judges that we all know it was good in their eyes. Mm -hmm. So everyone is seeing this as good in their eyes, and they think that Saul is actually finally doing something right, and he is, and it does align with God's purposes, but it's kind of interesting that he doesn't realize what he's done yet. Right, He has no clue, and you can almost hear Saul's servants kind of, uh, you know, breathing this sigh of relief that Oh, there's someone here to kind of balance him out, you know. Maybe run interference, and mm-hmm. but David is in the palace at this point. And so, before we move on, we're going to look at the rest of those verses so we can finish discussing um, Jonathan and David. Uh, 1 Samuel twenty seventeen repeats what we've already been told. You know, basically Jonathan loves David, and we've talked about why. That's just it's you can't use it either way. If you're going to use integrity with the scripture, you can't use it either way. Right. First uh, Samuel 20, 30 through 31. Uh, this is a conversation that uh, Jonathan is having with his father. So it says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? The claim is that this is the conversation every gay young man has had with his conservative father. And the passage has all the right buzzwords. It says all the right things to if this is what you're bringing to the passage, mm-hmm. then you're going to hear that. I I'm, I don't I don't want to negate that because right. we do bring our own baggage to to the passage. You know, perverse, rebellious, shame, nakedness. All of these things set off alarm bells in our own heads now the the reason for this saul says is that jonathan chose the son of jesse and so the idea that jonathan would choose his lover over his father the problem is this uh with this is the word for perverse there it means to bend or twist okay okay so um We've got it used other times in Samuel, so 2 Samuel 19, 18, Shimei describes his rebellion against David as perverse. In 24, 17, again, 2 Samuel, David uses the word to describe um, numbering the people. He says that action was perverse. Okay. In 1 Kings 8, 47, it's a description of general sin and despite all the sexual perversity within the books of Samuel and Kings and there is a lot and we're going to get to it all trust me give us time it, it's never used this word for perverse is never used to describe a sexual act in the book of Samuel okay matter of fact it is never used to describe a sexual act in the book of the, any book of the bible it is used to describe rebellion against a divinely appointed authority okay and so what's Jonathan doing in this passage? He is rebelling against Saul by protecting David's life. So mm. when again, context, context, context. and by the way, um, the word shows up 17 times. So this is not a small sampling of, oh, well, you know, two, one out of two times it's used one way, and one, mm. you know, it's, there's some yeah. definite weight. So the next passage is first Samuel. Twenty forty one through 42. And it's after David's near death, David and Jonathan meet, David falls on his face. He bows three times. They kiss each other. And the word for kiss in the Bible occurs 35 times because the kiss is the big deal. See, they meet each other and they, they have this romantic kiss. Okay. Only one time outside of the song of solomon and proverbs. I put those aside because those are everybody will, will be okay with the fact that when we talk about kissing in those two books, <laughs> it's a sexual reference, okay? Sure. I'm cool with that. I'm not denying that. But one time out of all the other times that it's used in the Bible, it's between family members, it's with men it, there's only one time that a kiss is romantic, it, well, could possibly be considered romantic, and that would be when uh, Jacob finds Rachel at the well. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the scripture specifically tells us he kisses her because she's his cousin and he's happy to see family, and they don't become romantically involved until later. Right. And then, I mean, you've got the whole Jacob and Esau scene when you the two brothers meet after Jacob's been in Laban's house. Mm -hmm. Jacob falls on his face. He bows before Esau. They kiss each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, are we saying that there's a sexual relationship there? I, I, I don't think we can make that case, and I don't see why we can make the case here. Also, in the New Testament, Paul four times encourages believers. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Mm-hmm. Kissing in this day and age was not romantic. Right. And so we have to look at the cultural context as well as the literary context. Now, like the final, like this is the 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 verse that's supposed to end all, all controversy. Is 2 Samuel 126. And it's David's eulogy for Saul and Jonathan. They've been killed. And David declares, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. So this is conclusive proof. David loved Jonathan like he loved a woman, as he loved a woman. And so they must have had a sexual relationship. So first problem with that is anybody who says that has not looked at David's marriages. David's marriages are arranged their political unions and their utter failures. Right. I, I you could argue that David never had a successful romantic relationship in his life. And so to say that Jonathan loved him better than the women in his life it, it actually makes sense. And like I said we've talked about how the word love it proves nothing one-way or the other and but it it does seem to be compelling. So I want to look at my primary objections for reading it as a, a homosexual relationship or affirming gay relationships within the Bible. First off, every article I read had nothing to do. Um, it, it, it didn't do anything with the context. There was no reading the verses within their own narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. didn't have anything before or after so that tells me there's a problem anytime and this includes people in the church and I need to be clear about this. If you are pulling a single verse out and saying this is what it means, you're lying to people. Right. Uh, you need to 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 back it up. And you know, do we have single verses that we like? Absolutely. But at the same time, don't just say this is what it means based on the words within that verse. You've got to have the full context. Right. Um none of these articles Examine the keywords, none of them looked to see where the words were used in other passages, mm-hmm. but are we being consistent with the way they're being used uh, there was attempts were made to contextualize these passages within historical settings outside the Bible, so like the Greeks and so yes, where is their homosexuality in the Greek culture? I think everybody knows yeah that was part of Greek society mm-hmm. and actually though the thing was as you there's a great deal of disdain for it, even within the Greek society, especially if you were not the the polite way to say this. If you were not the man of the relationship, if it, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I I'm not trying to be offensive here, but it's it's very very important that we recognize that in the David and Jonathan um, story, if even if it was told at this point, there would have been contempt for one of them being evidenced. Sure, and so. The contextualizing within a historical setting is a good thing. We do that all the time. I try to bring up archaeological finds and other writings from contemporary events during the Bible to show how they interact and they contrast. Mm-hmm. But if you can't place it first within the biblical context and then see show how history revolves around it or worked within it se- as a secondary point, you're doing it backwards. Right. So you, you've got to stay on point with that. The um, attempts to contextualize the relationship within Israel were not made. And that's, we've got to look at the, the, um, the, the Israelite context. This is true, and I'm for that. But the, what they were attempting to do is to say, yes, there was uh, homosexual relationships. We see that because of the male cult prostitutes. The Bible does talk about that. Completely different issue, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm and when I say it's a completely different issue, I, I'm repeating what most of the gay scholars today are saying. Right. Um, you know Matthew Vine in his work and, and it's saying that you know the Bible has no concept of a committed romantic homosexual relationship. That's one of his points. But then we turn around and say that David and Jonathan are. Which one is it? Sure. We 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 can't have both, and so if we're going to to contextualize it within Israel, uh, the 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 cult prostitutes, male or female, do nothing to help you out here again. Right. Um. No one mentioned David's regard and respect for the Torah. Not one, and the Torah specifically forbids homosexual relationship. I can't get around that. So mm-hmm. to know what David thinks about the Torah. We can look at David's own words, Psalm nineteen seven through eight. The law, the Torah of the Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the uh, yeah. This is a weird phrase. Rejoicing the heart and mm-hmm. the commandment of the Lord is pure. Psalms forty eight. I delight to do Your will, O oh my God. Your law, the Torah, is within my heart. And he just killed a giant because the giant had blasphemed God, and that was not allowed in the Torah, and had literally stoned him as Mm -hmm. the Torah commanded. So again, context. And I also have a problem with it because in order to read these verses this way, we have to ignore the rest of Samuel. Um. The writer of Samuel, okay, number one, he's not fond of the kingship to begin with. Right. He, he just doesn't really like the idea that Israel's following anyone other than God alone. Mm-hmm. And he's not overly fond of David either. And so he actually goes out of his way to make sure that we know as many details as possible of what David is doing wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at the story of David and Bathsheba, which we will be doing in the future. The writer does not spare you how horrible David was in all of this and why it is all David's fault. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, he, he wants you to get that David messed up. And when you read this book in the entirety, you really see that the writer wants you to, to see all of David's shortcomings. Now, if we were reading about this in Chronicles, then you would have, I mean, much better um, footing. Oh, yeah. Because Chronicles, they want you to be very happy, David. Your king, he's wonderful. Oh, we aren't going to even look at David and Bathsheba. That you know, that doesn't matter. We'll just kind of skoot that off to the side. Samuel's like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> Pay yeah. attention. You got to see what went on here. And so, n- not only does the Book of Samuel record when David fails and make sure that everyone knows it, he also makes sure to include that there is punishment. There's consequences that when the Torah is broken, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And that's for David, the highest you know, king and person in the land. He's not exempt. So nobody else is exempt. There's never any mention of the Torah, how it plays into this punishment or consequence, or even God saying, hey, I'll give you a pass on this one. Right. Uh, so I can't see the writer of, of Samuel. Not throwing that stone if he could, sure i I really think he he would he would have done that, so this is the reason why when you read a verse any verse, you have got to look at the context, and if you really want to drill down and try to understand what's going on, then you need to be looking at all of the surrounding information. Mm. And you need to be looking at how these concepts and words show up in other passages in order to try to, to get some kind of solid footing. Now, I said at the beginning, we, we created this. Yeah. Because too often in the church, when somebody brings up scholarship and somebody brings up some kind of argument um, based on, well, you know, the Hebrew or the Greek says this or that, or, you know, when that culture, this or that happened, somebody will always pipe up and they say the exact same thing. According to the plain reading of the text. Okay. So the plain reading of the text is what allowed this argument to actually find a foothold. Right. Because... When we're doing the plain reading of the text, if you don't have all those other pieces in play, it does very much look like Jonathan and David are gay. So one of the things I wanted to focus on is this is how our own standards and practices have got us into a fix where we can't even argue back against this without violating our own stand, and which puts us as hypocrites. And we, as Christians, need to get better about being consistent not only with our translations, we saw how translation inconsistencies cause problems right within you know one of the most popular uh, translations out there, but then also we we see how inconsistencies with how we read the Bible and how we apply the Bible also causes problems mm-hmm. and so and this is something that i I, I see within the church overall is When we have an issue and we have an issue and we think it's with the outsiders, the real issue started with something we did and Mm -hmm. everybody else just picked it up and ran with it. And then we're like, oh no, you can't do that. But we, we did it first. And I have a problem when we, we deny that we might be the instruments of our own demise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the church does a pretty good job of fumbling the ball. Um, which we, is why we need Jesus.
2: <laughs> what are, are you saying that, that, you know, actually Jesus might be superior to the law and that Jesus might show us how to properly apply and live within the limits of the law that isn't heartless or pompous or, mm. you know, that might actually lead to humility. Yeah. And yeah. And that's the thing. I, when when we look at, at sinful behavior, as the law describes it, it's not to say that you're a horrible person and that you're beyond redemption. It's saying, hey, this is how you break father's heart. And when you break father's heart, it, the proper response is to, to to grieve over that. When we hurt some a person, a human being that we love, and we see the pain that our action caused them, I really hope that our response is to go in humility and, and go in love and say, I'm sorry I hurt you, and I want to repair the relationship. And that's what God asks from people is, I'm sorry I hurt you. I want to repair the relationship. I won't do that again. And so when we start you know, guarding Father's heart the way that we guard you know, our latest romantic um, interest, mm-hmm. then we can start to grow in that, and we can be able to, to reach out and to actually care for the people around us and we can do so in a way that reflects that this began with the love we had for father and then we do become these we become his representatives on earth and you what's really cool about that idea is you know we've talked so much about how the kings of the ancient um, kingdoms that they were representatives of the gods and under the new testament covenant you know we're a royal priesthood that we the, that's what Peter calls us, and so we actually become the royal representatives in kind of the same manner uh, that the the ancient kings became representatives for the gods that they served, mm-hmm. and so I think we need to be paying attention to that. Now, in our our view, a lot of times that kind of status brings a lot of privilege is what we what we think of it as, but we need to really be looking at the fact that. They, brings a lot of responsibility and a lot of obligation to represent God well, mm-hmm. because to be in that situation, just like David was elevated from a shepherd boy, it's because he was a man after God's own heart. And so are we going to occupy our, our position within the kingdom as well and be people after God's own heart? And that's, that's the question I think a lot of this boils down to is, can we look at Father and say, I want to serve and represent you well? And I want to to make sure that my life is a reflection of who you are. Mm-hmm. So, I know I kind of took off there, but you know, the main thing I wanted to look at was I wanted to get that out of the way because if we can see David and Jonathan's um, relationship
0: mm-hmm.
2: as being one where Jonathan is stepping up to the plate, he's being that big brother, he's being that second father figure, he's coming in and he he's saying, "I'm going to." I'm going to to help you, and I'm going to care for you. and we see evidence of that when he's he's going to protect David from Saul over and over again. And there there's going to be some ongoing issues between the two families, Jonathan's family and David's family. and the the writer, Samuel's going to go of his way to show us that that david David kind of technically stood by the covenant between him and Jonathan, but he kind of Dropped the ball a few times. Right. And Jonathan really is shown as being superior in a lot of ways through that when we see how David fails. But at the same time, um, you know, when you see that Jonathan cares enough about this guy and he sees within him all of who he was as a warrior who stood before the Lord within David and and honoring that and being okay with with respecting where God is going to position David, even at the cost to Jonathan now we have a different framework to work through and we don't have to worry about anything else intruding because the Bible is going to tell you what it means. And it did. And these passages tell us what we should be thinking about this relationship. And so we don't have to read into anything outside of the Bible, but those things can inform. And we see that the Bible, when we look at those outside passages, the Bible stands in sharp contrast to the cultures and nations around the people of God, because they are a holy nation, Nation, they are set apart, they mm. are unique. This is you know, everything from the circumcision to the, to the pigs not eating them, to not wearing the mixed fibers. These were to denote how unique Israel was and we aren't gonna turn loose, or they weren't gonna turn loose one point and go, well, this one's okay. I'm not gonna eat any bacon, but this is okay. Right, You know you have to kind of look at what what the whole scenario lines up and adds up to be. And the problem is most people don't read enough of their Bible to get that contextual picture and that overall picture. so i and when I say, you know, I kind of joke about the bacon, but you know, whenever you look at the Maccabees and the the things when they brought the pig into the temple and the Jews' response to that, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, well, yeah, it's so
1: kind of a big deal,
2: it was a huge deal, <laughs> so.
1: No. Did I, you have
2: anything else on that? I think actually, I I got through and I added some to it, and you know, it was kind of. This is a rough episode for me. It is, and it's it's a, it's a sensitive topic,
1: and want to handle it with care, and not because mm-hmm. I mean, anytime we we bring up really sensitive sensitive issues, we definitely want to make sure we're wanting to put out there that we are encouraging people to be loving and to study. And Mm -hmm. when you come to the text, Mm -hmm. yes, you, you bring your baggage and you do the best to set it aside. Right. And, but whenever you look at what's going on there, you you know, you can't start with an agenda Mm -hmm. and get, and and get anywhere. Right. Because I mean, you can get, you can get, you can get anywhere. If you start with your agenda, you can get everywhere. (laughs) If you start with your agenda. And one of the, one of the things I wanted to to bring up here in, in, uh, And I am going to just read a verse, (laughs) but the, you know, you're talking about the whole plain reading of the text thing and how that has been the argument that's got us in the mess we've been in, Mm -hmm. right? And in, you know, first Corinthians eight, one now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll do a couple more verses. If anyone imagine he knows something, he does not yet know as, uh, he does not yet know as he ought, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so, I have for years heard various uh, anti, you know, there's an anti-intellectual movement in the church, yes. unfortunately. I can't deny that. Yes, mm-hmm. it exists. It's not the totality of believers. Right. Thank God. And, and i I do see a growing number of people coming forward and going, no, I want to learn, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I see the number increasing because people are finding out, as I joked the other day, the Bible's a lot more fun when you're not just quoting Paul out of context, which I feel <laughs> like that's the majority of, not the majority, but it's been a large number of sermons I've heard over the years, and is, is Paul out of context.
2: Flooding the internet with those right now.
1: And, and and the pastors use that phrase, well knowledge puffs up. So mm-hmm. we shouldn't we shouldn't trust the scholars. They're just prideful. But it says but love builds up. But it also does not say don't pursue knowledge.
2: Right. Right. Actually Paul commands just the opposite in Timothy. Mm-hmm. Study. Yes.
1: <laughs> what we have to do is make sure as we are increasing in knowledge, we're also increasing in love. Right. Because love, we can, we can grow in both, mm-hmm. but if we're not growing in love, we just have to make sure that our, our growth in our love for others and, and love for God outpaces yeah. our knowledge well enough to keep us from growing arrogant.
2: Well, and that's the thing. I think the more truth you know, the more you realize how much you need a God who loves you and that should inspire you to love everyone around you more because what, what else do we need? I mean, I, all of us are hurting for love. We need to be loved. There's some area in our life that is not being loved perfectly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so when God comes along and says, hey, I can love even the broken places. And now here's the, the cool thing about God's love. It never leaves you broken. It never leaves you where he found you. He mm-hmm. always, it, it does build up. And if, if it's not building you up and it's not causing you to grow in greater maturity, then it's probably not God's love. It's probably your own vain, vain imaginations making you feel good about something you don't want to turn loose of. And so that's a whole other sermon. Uh, but God's love. He he can he can love us no matter where we are, and mm-hmm. that's that's where we start. And then you know, every so often, do a do a spiritual checkup. Am I growing? A- am I moving mm-hmm. forward? A- and you know, if you're a year down the road and you haven't you haven't, then you might want to address some issues. And that's the reason why. Also, we need to be in community because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we need people around us and saying, you know, this you aren't growing or you've you've gotten stuck. And uh, we need to be willing to to receive those words, and that's the thing about Christianity. I think that just blows people's mind. it, it, is, it is so relational, mm-hmm. and you know, and I know that it's real popular to say it's a it's a relationship, not a religion. I, that's not it, what I'm talking about. I'm but ta- we
1: are the both and podcast, yes. basically, <laughs> right? It, it's both.
2: It, it, it is. It is because if you don't have the those quote unquote religion guidelines to help you, then you're just trying to figure it out on your own and trying to recreate the wheel. Why waste the time? Sure. You know, I mean, sure. I'm too lazy. I will I will admit that. And so when God says, hey, this is what I want you to do, then why not just do that? Yep. I mean, take the easy way out. <laughs> so, but. Yep. Yep. I get it. No.
1: Well, I don't have anything else really to add to that other than. Grow in love. Be kind to one another. Grow in yeah. knowledge.
2: Yeah. So we'll return with um, King Saul, uh, Saul. I keep wanting to say there's too many S's in this book. Yeah. So yeah, we'll return with, uh, with Samuel and we're going to be getting into David's marriages. And Yeah. Plural. Yeah. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And can't yeah. wait to get there. And...
1: Saul and his knickknack collections. So. <laughs> anyway... Um, As it were. So we'll see everyone next week. If you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on the social media, ravencreeksc.com, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.